Well, today we're going to look at a mystery. As we're going to pause in Leviticus for a moment and, and traveling chapter by chapter to look at a, a couple, couple themes I haven't had an opportunity to dig into. A couple mysteries that are going to trace back over 1,500 years. Who are the Canaanites that are suddenly occupying the Promised Land? Who are these people Moses is leading and why are they called Jews? And there's some clues in Leviticus 14, 18, and 19 that explain to us 1,500 years ago was something that occurred that has created chaos and conflict in the family and the society and in the culture that Moses is going to write down in detail so that we can explore the mystery and understand what's really happening as they enter the promised land. You know, we've mentioned Canaan twice now, right? Canaan has been mentioned. Um, next screen. I'll reboot. He mentions Canaan here twice. And when he mentions it, it's interesting because where do these Canaanites come from? Who are they? What are they doing in the promised land? How do they get in the promised land? And, and, and he says, when you come in the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites live... And when you get there, I don't want you to act like the culture of Egypt where you came. And I don't want you to act like the culture of Canaan where you're going. But the question is, where did the Canaanites come from? How did they end up here that there's this counter-cultural going on? And what we're going to discover is that the conflict that's occurring in the present between the, the Moses and, and the Israelites and the Canaanites, the conflict in the present is the result of consequences from the past. So we're going to trace back 1,500 years to look at exactly what happened in the past that has caused these issues. Not just for them, but for you and I. Because many of us, the way we talk, the way we define as normal how we handle conflict, how we handle anger, our ability to apologize, our inability to apologize, how easy it is for us to affirm others or not affirm others, the conflict we have of overcoming certain habits or certain tendencies is usually the result of consequences of how our family of origin, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our family systems have patterned certain things that we have picked up as normal, even though it may be extremely abnormal. We've picked it up as healthy, even though it may be extremely unhealthy. What God is going to show us today, and why I'm so excited about this message, is that the stakes are incredibly high. The generational impact, if we will learn how to untangle ourselves from the past, we can be free. We can be free, and not only for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of our kids and our kids' kids. The stakes are high to unravel why we do what we do, why we can't do what we currently want to do, and, and how what's happened in the past, uh, abuses from the past, difficulty from the past, patterns from the past, may be keeping us from experiencing God's very best. So we're going to look today at the past, the present, and the future. Want to switch back to me? The past, the present, and the future. We'll start with the past. I'm going to tell you a little story of what happened in the past. And just to give you some dates here, Noah is around 3000 B.C. Abraham is around 2000 B.C. And Moses is around 1500 B.C. 
And so Moses, writing the book of Leviticus around 1500 B.C., is going to say, you won't understand what's happening here until we go back 1500 years to the time of Noah. But just to keep track of who's who, let me give you a little timeline. So from Adam, he has three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Eventually we have Noah, and Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Which is always funny because we've learned a lot about kosher laws. And here's a Jewish man named Noah. And we know that pigs are unkosher. And he's named his son Ham. Ham. And of course, it, it didn't mean the same thing it means to us. But, so here's Ham and here is Shem. And we're going to find out that something happened right here that 1,500 years later is still affecting the people of God. Now, a few things to note. Ham has a son. And Ham's son's name is Canaan. Oh. Where did the Canaanites come from? They came from 1,500 years ago. Noah's son, Ham, has a son named Canaan. Canaan will also have a, a, a son, and his name will be Amorite. And so the Canaanites and Amorites will both be used interchangeably to discuss this chaotic, dysfunctional, polluting the land culture that has destroyed the promised land. In fact, Canaan literally means synchronicity, which is an idea of taking a little bit of God, a little bit of Jesus in your life, and adding in other ideas, other concepts, other cultures, other pagan rituals, and synchronizing that. The word Canaan also means chaos of the wild elements, which is a good description. Because what happens in Canaan's life, because of something that wasn't even intended by him, something happened to him, the level of chaos and wild elements that it brings into his life, into his marriage, into his family, into his culture, and ultimately into the entire land is a great word, chaos and wild. Amorite, the name Amorite literally means bitter, rebel, or babbler. Again, gossip divides, rebellion divides, bitterness divides. There's going to be an entire culture with these type of chaotic elements breeding through or ripping through history. Now, keep that in mind because Abraham, now we're going to jump from 3000 B.C., 1000 years later, 2000 B.C. to Abraham. And God is going to warn him of what's going to happen with the Amorite culture. So, quick little timeline here. So now we have from Shem, eventually comes Terah, Abraham's father, and from Terah is Abraham. So God is speaking to Abraham at 2000 BC, and he's going to describe the Amorite culture and the future of Abraham's descendants. So God says to Abram, know certainly that your descendants, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to give you a, a, a Messiah... But before you get there, before you inherit that, you need to know that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. i got a promise for you, but just know you're going to be put in bondage, your people. And they will afflict them for 400 years. God is predicting the Egyptian bondage in advance. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge the Egyptians for what they did, predicting the exodus in advance. But afterwards, for after 400 years, they will come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But four generations later, you'll be able to inherit the promises I'm telling you about. To which the question is, why are you waiting so long? Why not take the promised land now? And here's what he says, because 
the iniquity, the sin, the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the land is not worthy of judging yet. God is patient. God is kind. He is giving 400 years for the Amorites to repent. The Amorites to change their ways. The Amorites to come out of the chaos and out of the wild and return to God. He said, after 400 years, the wickedness will get to a place that I have to intercede and I have to intervene. So all of that's going on in the past. And now we understand who the Canaanites were. It is the descendants of Noah's son, Ham. But there's a lot more to the story here. Because the question still remains, what happened here to cause all that chaos? What happened here to cause all that turmoil? Before we figure that out, let's look at some lessons we can already learn here at 1500 B.C. Number one, we are all impacted by the consequences of the past, directly or indirectly. As the Israelites come face to face with the Canaanites, in one sense they had nothing to do with what happened 1500 years ago, but it's right in front of them, they've got to deal with the consequences of it. And if Moses is writing this down so they'll deal with the consequences of their past... Perhaps he's encouraging you and I to look back into the consequences of our past and what's influencing or impacting us. Two, we see in this promise to Abraham that God is working hundreds of years in advance to give space for people to repent, to give space for people to return. God is so patient that in advance he's predicting the problems that are coming, how he's going to work through the problems, and how all of it is part of a grand plan he has. And that is something we all need. Yeah, two weeks ago, we had a funeral here. And as I was doing the funeral, we had the casket here of a 28-year-old. And the casket was originally actually out in, uh, in our atrium. And there was a lot of sadness and a lot of pain. And it was uh, the loss of a life way too young through the... Uh, a heroin addict, uh, overdose. and One of the most powerful moments is as I watched the family gathered around the casket and her boyfriend, who also had struggles with addiction, came in. As soon as he came in and was just struck that his girlfriend had died, I saw the family intuitively like walk over, walk to him, hugged him, embraced him, and walked with him up to the casket and grieved together. As I talked with uh, the family later, they said one of the amazing things about the funeral is we thought the years of chaos, the years of rebellion, the years of wildness, that God was not at work. It just seemed like God had left the building for a long time. But we began to hear stories of even in the midst of the chaos, even in the midst of the conflict, even in the midst of that we tried a lot of grace, we tried a lot of truth, nothing could, could get things back on, on the track. We began to hear stories how God was working in the midst of, even in the midst of addiction, there was Bible studies going on. Even in the midst of addiction, there was people learning about Jesus and people being handed worship albums, like old-fashioned Michael W. Smith worship albums from this woman who struggled with addiction. And yet God was even working in the rebellion. So it was so encouraging that we thought were totally lost years that even God could work in the midst of that. And there's going to be a lot of lost years between 3000 to 1500 BC, but they're not lost in the sense that God is still working. And even those 400 years 
if you were in Egyptian bondage, you'd feel like God has lost, left the building, God's will. I don't know where God's will, but it's not around here. Yeah, I think the fourth principle we learn is that God predicted the Egyptian bondage in advance and said, that's going to be part of my will. I'm going to use the consequences and the challenges in the past to bring us into his will, to fully develop us, to fully accomplish my purpose. And so if you're in difficulty, it does not always mean you're out of God's will. That God can sovereignly work with the good and the bad in our life to accomplish greater goals. So we haven't figured exactly what's happened in Noah's life yet, but we're beginning to get some pictures of it. So we're going to move from the past now to the present, at least the present for Moses. What is the impact of this past in the present? Well, now we're in Leviticus. In Leviticus, we get a little phrase that helps us. So Leviticus chapter 18, Moses, who wrote Genesis, also wrote Leviticus, says, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord, the nakedness of your father, or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. And again, we learned a couple weeks ago that this phrase, uncover your nakedness, is a, a euphemism. It's a Hebrew idiom for to impregnate. It was a protection against incest, that you were not to uncover the nakedness of your father. How did you do that? By impregnating your mother. You didn't uncover the nakedness of your mother, which is a term for meaning you got pregnant by your father. And this term, which seems obscure, like why has God mentioned this? Because apparently in the Egyptian cultures, it was pretty common for men to impregnate their daughters, their granddaughters, their daughter-in-laws, their sister-in-laws. And so God says, the, the abuse, sexual abuse of the past has caused the pain of the present. And I want my people to deal directly with the behaviors and the abuses of the past so that you can save future generations from the pain of sexual abuse. But to understand how we got here with the Canaanites, you need to understand that this phrase, to uncover the nakedness, explains what happened way back here with Noah and Ham in Genesis chapter 9. And until you understand that, until you dig into that, you're not going to be free to enter into the future of the promised land I have for you. Many of you may have heard the phrase uh, or the name Josh McDowell. Josh is sort of a famous evangelist. He wrote uh, More Than a Carpenter. He's spoken here a few times, and, and he came to speak about family. He's come to speak about marriage. He's come to speak about biblical reliability or why Jesus is God. Last time he was in town, <coughs> I, I, several of us on the team said, do you mind if we pray for, for you before the, the service? And so as we often will do, we'll, we'll lay hands or place a hand on a shoulder as we're praying, and God would say, I should be with Josh. He says, well, I don't mind if you pray for me, but I want you to not place your hands on me. I said, well, that's fine. He said, do you mind if I tell you why? I said, sure. He said, I've just recently, after 60 plus years of life, began to be open and honest about the fact that I was sexually abused by a man in my life. And when people lay hands to pray for me, often they will sort of, you know, unintuitively or, or uh, unconsciously sort of massage as they're praying. And that's one of the same things that was done when I was abused. He says, and though I believe Jesus is God, and though I believe the Bible's reliable, I'm just now coping with the consequences of what happened to me some 40, 50 years ago. I remember when we were at uh, Cincinnati Country Day School, I had uh, some friends who had been attending. We got to be good friends with them. And, and I noticed that occasionally I'd come up to shake their hands after service, and, and it was just an awkward moment. It wasn't a big deal, but just a little awkwardness. 
And one day she sat down with me, with her husband, and said, do you mind if I explain something to you about my story? And I said, sure. She, she sat down and she said, uh, sometimes when I reach out to shake hands, something weird happens. I said, well, I've noticed it. I just thought I was too busy or something. She said, no. You need to understand that I was sexually abused by a priest. And you represent spiritual authority. And when you reach out to shake my hand, I know you don't mean anything by it, but there's a, there's a feeling of, of violation that goes with that. And I'm like, oh, I would cause or, or be a, a catalyst to a memory like that. And so we, I said, well, what can we do? And I said, well, how about this? Don't ever extend your hand to me. Um, I said, got it. Um, but there's sometimes it doesn't affect me at all. And, and so when I see you, I'll extend my hand to you and feel free to reciprocate. And that was sort of a, a, a way that we decided to do this. And it went for years. And we would sort of check in with each other. And, and she said, as I'm dealing with this, this guy's giving me grace. And, and the conversations we had about that became an act of grace that she began to find more and more freedom. And I got to be part of that journey simply by being patient with and respectful to and careful with even how I shook hands. A couple weeks ago, in our exploring service, we did a series, and uh, I had a guest speaker named Gary, and he shared a book. I'll put the book up. I shared the story of a, a friend of his named Laura, who had been through severe sexual abuse. And he says he knows Laura, and Laura has, <coughs> has incredibly confidence in God, incredible grace, incredible forgiveness, and is just living in freedom from shame and guilt, unlike anyone he's ever known who's been through abuse. And he told her story about how she was able to find freedom in this because God tapped her on the shoulder, though she'd been a Christian for 10, 20 years, and said, is it time for us to finally deal with the stuff that's in the closet? After the service that day, I was not speaking, I was just attending, and one of our friends sitting about the third row here had invited a, a friend who'd never been to Horizon before, who'd had similar uh, stories, was not a believer in Jesus, God, or the Bible. And I walked up, and she said, I hated that message. I said, well, tell me a little about that. And she said, how does God get off the hook just because he died on the cross for what happened to me and what happened to her? I said, man, that's a great point. I said, I'm not sure, I tell you, but apparently this woman who wrote this story had something happen in her life that brought about freedom. Maybe it's worth exploring so that you could be free. What did she find that you want? What did she find that you need? We just had a great conversation. It became sacred space right here in this area as we began to talk about how the, the consequences of the past may be affecting her ability to love God, trust God, pursue God, trust men, etc. And what Leviticus 18 is going to tell us is that what's happened at 1500 B.C. between the Jews and the, and we'll find out why they're called Jews in a second, and the Canaanites is because of what happened 1500 years ago when somebody uncovered the nakedness of someone. Which brings us now to Genesis chapter 9. So Genesis chapter 9, it's a weird story. It goes like this. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And he mentions this sort of out of the ordinary. Why does he mention that? But it goes on. And the three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and one day he became drunk, and he became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, now it's mentioned that Ham is Canaan's dad twice, odd thing to put into a little summary of the whole life, that Canaan, Ham, saw the nakedness of his father, the same phrase used in Leviticus 1,500 years later, 
And he told his two brothers outside, and Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And now we have this bizarre story. Good old Noah, he saved the world, and now he's drunk and naked under a tent. What do you do with Noah? And commentators, there's four views, and I'm going to offer a fourth view that I think explains a lot. The first three views are weird. Uh, Actually, they're all weird. The whole situation is weird. But let me give you the situation. View number one is that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness, meaning, oh, dad's naked. Hmm. Dad's naked. He just looks at his nakedness, which is just weird. And that's what happened here. I don't think that's what happened. Commentate number two believes that he was mad at his dad. And when his dad is naked and drunk, he castrates his dad, which is why his dad wakes up and is like, look what you've done to me. Also weird, don't think that's what happened. View number three <coughs> is based on this phrase, uncovered his nakedness, is that while his dad was, was uh, drunk and laid out, he has sexual relationships with his dad. An ancestral, paternal uh, incest happens in this moment. But there's a fourth view, I think, that the text explains, that is going to explain 1,500 years of problems and several pieces in the text. Because the phrase to uncover your father's nakedness can mean you want to dis- dishonor your father by sleeping with his wife. So when you uncover your father's nakedness, it means you impregnate his wife to show you have superiority over him. Which means now we have not paternal incest, but maternal incest. And there's several hints in the text that speak to that. Before I explain those pieces, let me again show you where we're at. So we have all this chaos that's occurring here because something happens between Ham and Noah or in his family that begins to, to go through this family line. Meanwhile, Abraham is going to have a son named Isaac who's going to have a son named Jacob who will also be known as Israel, thus the Israelites. He will have 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And pretty soon people will begin to identify with Judah. They call themselves the Judanites. And then it will be shortened from the Judanites to the Jews. And now we have the Judanites coming from the line of Shem, 1,500 years later, coming face-to-face with the Canaanites and the Amorites who are bringing chaos into the Promised Land. And now in 1,500 B.C., there is a family conflict going on that traces back 1,500 years to the implications of sexual abuse. Here's some of the hints from the text. Number one, twice in the text, it wants us to know that Canaan is not Noah's son. Well, why would we need to know that? Why mention that except that something happened that you might think that Canaan was Noah's son, maybe because Noah's wife fathered him or or mothered him, but that she had been impregnated by Ham. Twice it mentions Ham is the father of Canaan. Ham is the father of Canaan. Two, the phrase to see the nakedness of his father is referenced several times in the Bible, including Ezekiel 22, to say, when you uncover your father's nakedness, it's, you, it's an act by which you violate women. If you think of uh, Absalom, Absalom is so angry at his dad for all those years and not dealing with the, the, the abuse that happened with Tamar when she gets raped and, and David was so incompetent in dealing with the situation. He waited for years and years and years and years. And finally he comes back and he says, Dad... I've taken over mutiny. I've taken over your whole kingdom. And just to spite his father, let his father know just how much pain he had caused. If you remember this, he takes a tent. He pitches it on the top of the temple in the king's palace. And he sleeps with his father's wives and concubines. It's a way of dishonoring your father and showing supremacy. And I think that's what happened here. And this is one more clue in the text. So... When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his younger son had done to him. 
he had slept with his wife or slept with his mother. And then this is weird. He does not curse Ham for what he did. He curses Canaan for what happened, which seems weird. Like, why is Canaan getting the blame for what Ham did? He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now, the problem we have in our culture is we don't really have a good word for curse. Like, what does curse mean? It's like what witches do, right? <laughs> My pretty. So when you see the word cursed, insert the word consequences. The consequences of what you've done today, Ham, are going to be felt by your children and children's children for generation. Ham is going to grow up in utter chaos. Wild. You've brought conflict into our family. We're the, we're the repopulation of the earth family, and you have brought sexual abuse, and you've destroyed our family dynamics. You've destroyed family relationships. You're forever not going to have the same kind of relationship with mom, with me, with each other, because of what's happened today. And it is going to put a line of chaos into your entire family line that we may never recover from. Which is why I said the conflict in the present, meaning 1500 B.C., is the result of the consequences of the past. And often for us to move forward into God's will, to move forward into God's freedom, to move forward in what God has for us, we must first look back at what has happened in the past. And it may be sexual abuse, or it may be because my dad never dealt with his anger, I have this pattern that I deal with anger the same way. Because my grandfather never really learned how to encourage, my dad didn't really learn how to encourage, therefore I didn't know how to encourage. Because of the, the, the ramifications of World War II and the post-traumatic syndrome, that didn't create the emotional closeness with my father, which, which made it hard for me to be emotional close and therefore I'm hard to be hard with my kids and if I want to break free of that if I want to start new patterns I need to go back and understand how the past has impacted my present so that I can walk into my future because here's the good news of the Bible though the past does impact you your yesterdays don't determine your tomorrows your yesterdays do not determine or predestine your tomorrows. However, you've got to invite God into your yesterdays in order to walk with Him into your tomorrows. And here's where we're back in Leviticus again, where the hope begins to begin to be shaped. He says, You shall do, and according to the doings of the land of Canaan, now you understand how much is in that phrase. The culture of, of incest, the culture of abuse, the culture of, of wickedness. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to impact future generations the way you were impacted. I need you to change and, and stop certain behaviors. And where I'm bringing you, it's gonna, there's going to be a lot of pressure to act and do things in certain ways. But you shall not do them. Instead, look at the future words. You shall, future tense, walk in my ordinances. Invite me into your life to walk out your tomorrow. Invite me into thinking about what happened in the past uh, with Canaan, but to walk out this new way of doing things. You shall observe my judgments, to walk in my grace, to come free from your shame, free, free from your guilt, free from the patterns. Keep my ordinances. You're going to find it's better, it's freer when you do it my way. Walk in them. What, what I'm talking about is not primarily something to believe, though you do need to believe it. It's something you do, you walk out, you practice, you, you engage in, he's saying. For I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and my judgments. And if you do this, if you practice this, if you invite me into your past, if you invite me into your present, if you walk with me into your future, you're going to live. There's going to be more and more liberty. 
freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. You'll begin to understand that you were victimized, but you're not defined by being a victim. That you can be fully cleansed, fully washed. I can work with you in your healing. That that can be a chapter of your life, but it doesn't have to define your life. You can live again. You can be free again. It can be different. You don't have to be chained and anchored to your past. For I am Lord. We had a baptism service last night. We baptized several people out in our, our baptism pool. And it reminded me of, of a woman, a friend of mine, who was going to get baptized when I was in my 20s. And I asked her, I said, why, why are you choosing to be baptized? She's been a Christian for a long time. I believe in God, I believe in the Bible. But I, I suffered some sexual abuse from a Christian leader in my life. And I realize I have not been able to trust God since. And this baptism is really my attempt to say, God, I'm trying to reach out to you to have a new day and a new start. I said, well, can I share something with you that, that might be helpful? She said, please. I said, it wasn't several years ago that I, I met with, and, and she said that God gave her a dream as she was wrestling with this time in her life of wrestling with the abuse and what happened. And she described it this way. She said, in the dream, I was hurled up, curled up, fetal position in the corner of a room. It was all dark. And I was weeping. I had just been assaulted. And as I was experiencing that grief and that mourning, it was as if in my dream the camera turned and just tilted slightly to the, to the left. And though I had not seen it before, in the corner of the room was Jesus. And he was weeping with me. And he was grieving with me. And he was in that moment with me. And he was experiencing the pain with me. She said, in that reality that God was with me, that he understood my pain, that he'd entered into my pain, became the beginning of a journey toward freedom. As I shared that story that day, this woman went to get baptized, and, and I remember we, we didn't have our own facility, so we always had to wear robes because we were in this big Lutheran church that required us to wear robes to do our baptisms. And we walked into the water, and, and I asked um, this friend of mine to share why she was getting baptized, and, and she said, I heard a story of a dream. And she told the story, and I realized that God knows my pain, that he's entered into my pain, and I want this to be the beginning of identifying myself with a new day and a new beginning and a new walk. It's one of those powerful days of my life most powerful moments in a baptism I've ever had. And now when we get to the New Testament, Jesus shows up, and it's very powerful. Because if you were a rabbi, your genealogy is pretty important, tracing back to what tribe you were. Am I a, am I a Judeite or am I a Simeonite? Am I a Gibeonite or am I a... And so when you put your family tree together, if you were a rabbi, you took out all the scandal. There's no divorces in my family. Oh, there's no abuse in my family. You, you scrubbed it clean of foreigners. You scrubbed it clean of women. And yet when Jesus shows up, both in the book of Matthew and, and the book of Luke, and we see his genealogy, he leaves all the scandal in. It's his way of saying, whatever's happened to you, or whatever you've done, I want to enter into your story. I want to help you with what you've had. So in the genealogy of Jesus, we see Shem, who had to watch what happened in the family with Ham and Mom and Dad and the conflict in Canaan and Amorites. And God says, if you've got a story like Shem, that's part of my family line. I've come to help with people who have been in a family like that. 
If you don't know the story of Judah, I'll just give you a quick piece of the story of Judah. It's scandalous. To think that the Jews were the Judeanites and they know themselves as Jews, it's scandalous. Judah has a daughter-in-law whose husband dies, and he refuses to sort of get her betrothed to somebody else. And so he decides, Judah one day, Mr. Religious Judah, he decides to go into town and visit a brothel. His daughter-in-law, wanting to get pregnant, sneaks into town, disguises herself as a, as a prostitute, and he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law but doesn't know it. She asks for a tribute. He gives him her seal, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. He heads home. A few months later, he finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant, and he becomes Mr. Religious, Mr. Bigoted, Mr. I-can't-believe-somebody-would-do-that. He then comes to her and begins to condemn her, gets everybody around to stone her. I know daughter-in-law of mine is going to sleep around. To which she says, could I talk to Judah for a moment? The guy who slept with me owned this. I think we're going to let this one go. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see. Nothing to see. And here God again says, whether it's something you've done or something done to you, invite me into your story. Your yesterdays don't have to determine your tomorrows. My story is that I can be the center of your healing. I can be the center of your restoration. I can be the center of your future. Boaz and Ruth marries a, a foreigner mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, Ruth by name in Matthew. David Oh my goodness, the scandal. I mentioned a few things with Absalom and Tamar and all the havoc that's caused and him killing off Uriah. And God says, I want to work in the midst of your brokenness, work in the midst of your rebellion. And whatever your yesterdays are, they don't determine your tomorrows if you invite my grace and my healing and my courage and my power into your story. Now fast forward. I could literally show you scandal after scandal in every one of these, but let's just jump forward to Mary. Jesus allows himself to be born into a family of scandal. A betrothed but pregnant woman in a Jewish culture that would be stoned for it. A divorce by Joseph until the angel appears to him. And apparently the scandal of having a, being born out of wedlock will stay with Jesus most of his life because he's having a debate with the Pharisees one day and he's beating them in the debate and so they result in name calling and they say, well, you know what, at least we weren't born of fornication, which is the ancient equivalent of saying, you're a bastard and we all know it. And Jesus took on scorn and he took on abuse and he took on pain and he did that because he said, whatever's happened to you or whatever you've done, invite me into your story. And the reason Moses writes this out in great detail is to say, let's bring this out of the closet. Let's bring this out of the darkness. Invite Jesus to be the center of your healing and you can move forward. That though the consequences of the past are certainly showing up in the conflict of the present... They don't have to determine how you walk into the future. So during this next song, I'd like you to make it a prayer, and then we'll invite you to stand and join us. And the song is simply this. It's saying, Jesus, if you could work with that mess in that timeline, I want to invite you to be the center of my timeline and the center of my story and to work in the midst of my brokenness. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your grace your healing, your comfort, your restoration would be the center of our worship this morning as we invite you into our stories that we would be different because you drew near to us. Be the center of our hearts. In Jesus' name.